your cake online. What's Baking Cake Nation and welcome back to a, the Chemistry Cake online podcast where chatting about chemistry has never been sweeter. Chemistry Cake is online and today we are kicking off our inorganic chemistry series with a super sweet guest who received his bachelor's degree at UC San Diego and is currently a PhD candidate at Northwestern University. We chat a lot about cooking and being plant parents, which is truly a lovely time. So folks, would you help me in giving a fresh out the oven warm welcome to my sweet friend, Cole Carter. Cole, it is really wonderful to get to chat with you on the podcast. I think the last time I actually got to see you in person was around this time last year. Uh, How have you been? Yeah, actually, almost a year to the day, I think, because I, I was visiting my my alma mater, UC San Diego, um, because my family lives in California, so I took a trip down to San Diego to see all the San Diego people and got a chance to meet you. So yeah, probably around this time. Um, I'm doing well, uh, you know, just floating in that pocket dimension between Christmas and New Year's where time is made up and you can do whatever you want whenever you want because uh, nobody nobody cares. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like, I think of all of this entire year, time is just an illusion. I think it's like the the 287th day of March, I think. Anyway, um, I also hear that you have taken to bread baking. Uh, how has that been going for you? It's been really fun. Um, so it's really cute, actually, because my mom was the one who first started bread baking in our family. So she had a sourdough starter that she's been keeping for a while. And this is actually a really fun story because um, so my my parents live in Northern California um, in the in Santa Rosa. And uh, a couple of years ago, that fires went through the area and mm-hmm. kind of burned everything down. But before those fires came through, uh, my mom gave me some of her sourdough starter. And so that sourdough starter, though it died, you know, in her home and then, you know, in all of my other siblings' homes, it also died. Uh, mine is a surviving colony of that same, that same, you know, yeast colony. So uh, it's been really fun to just kind of bake with it. And every time I do, I get to, you know, think about um, all the times I'll be baked with my family, which is fun. And just also the the chemist geek in me loves um <laughs> Playing with the recipe and seeing how the the results is different every time I go through making bread, so um, it's, it's a lot of fun. I haven't made bread recently, um, which I think I do need to change. Thanks for reminding me. I should probably see my starter tonight to make bread tomorrow. Oh heck yeah! Oh yeah, we stand that. Um, well, firstly, thank you for sharing that. That's that's a. I'm glad that it has a sweet ending, um, despite the the beginnings of that um i'm glad that the yeast colony survived and um i i do remember when one of our conversations you were talking about acquiring what was called a lame am i saying that correctly yeah or i mean i've never heard the word spoken aloud um i don't i don't think i ever actually ended up ordering one but we were talking about a really cool pattern that you wanted me to try putting into a loaf of bread there's a tool um, that people who are like super serious into bread baking use called a lame, which is effectively, uh, I mean, in your mind's eye, you can think about it kind of like a scalpel. It's a handle with a, like a razor at the end. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's used to make really precise cuts if you want to make detailed patterns. Um, I, however, unlike you, Cake, um, I'm not really artistic enough to do a good job making patterns in my bread. I just kind of do a hash mark and call it a day. <laughs> but I would love to see what, what you would end up doing um, with, with a piece of bread, seeing some of your paintings. You know, I've never... So I have... Okay, a few things. Firstly, I've never thought of bread being the subject of any of my paintings, but I definitely... My sister has definitely been trying to encourage me to do a lot of still lifes, so I might consider it, firstly. Secondly, um, you certainly have an artistic ability, and I think that if like you really wanted to... Because I, I only started painting in March of this year, so I, I think you definitely could like do really well with the with the scoring of the bread. I think you can. I, I believe in you. Maybe I just need to throw on some Bob Ross and um, oh, yeah. my, my uh, artistic skills that way. Yeah, you can draw like happy trees in your bread. Oh my god, that'd be so cute! Alright, well, I guess I know what I'm doing next time I'm making bread then. Heck yes, we're so excited. We stand new growth. Okay. That really is awesome. We definitely support creativity and and uh, artistic endeavors, so I'm totally here for it. Um, another thing that I am totally here for is your science. But before we dive right into that, I, I was really intrigued by what your favorite molecule is, which you happened to say was ferrocene. And I, I love ferrocene for my own reasons, but would you mind telling the folks at home why ferrocene is your favorite molecule? Yeah, I love ferrocene for a couple of reasons. One, the the historical value is really interesting to me because it was one of the um, first organometallic molecules that was isolated and studied in detail, mm-hmm. um, which means it kind of forms the basis of our, our ideas of what um, organometallic chemistry is and where it comes from. And sort of seeing the evolution of our understanding of inorganic chemistry through the lens of ferrocene and then other metallocenes where you sort of use ferrocene as a almost like a model of what you expect from um, that type of chemistry is really interesting to me and just from a more practical point of view I, I love the molecule because it's the cheap starting material that's really easy to acquire um, and also purify and really easy to work with because it's extraordinarily stable and will tolerate any condition you throw at it and you can pretty much treat it like an organic molecule. So it acts like a very innocent substituent um, if you want to throw it on something else. So it's just like a really neat... Um, I know in chemistry, we don't think about model compounds very often. But it's almost like a model compound where we understand it so well that you can introduce it to a new system and use that as a probe for some other property you're studying. Uh, which I think is just really cool. Um, and also the, just the breadth of synthesis that is available just through the several decades people have been working on ferrocene. Um, almost any organic transformation you would want to do, you can somehow do to ferrocene because someone at some point has figured out how to do it, which just, you know, the chemical space available without doing novel synthesis is uh, really helpful. So um, there's definitely a lot of reasons that I love ferrocene. And part of it is because um, as I'm sure we'll get into later, it's a it's a backbone of what I do. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a really cool molecule, and it also defies a lot of your preconceptions about organometallics, um, where you have 
carbon metal bonds, but uh, instead of being extraordinarily sensitive, it's actually really difficult to decompose ferrocene. So just that idea that a metal carbon bond has to be unstable is really challenged. And you sort of think about, okay, what about these molecules makes it more stable? And that really, when you tug on that thread, you start finding a lot of really cool chemistry. That, that's so cool. Well, first and foremost, you did answer my next question, which was, do you work with this? So I'm, I'm excited to get into that. But secondly, your reasons for it being your favorite molecule are far more uh, profound than, <laughs> than mine, which is because the metal is iron and because it's a sandwich. And uh, uh, Alex Goldberg and Kem Jabber can at me about, about that statement. So I just want to say those are definitely a big part as well. You know, I could go on a, you know, rant about ferrocene, um, but oh. I can feed myself. The fact that the sandwich is also um, definitely up there. That's, I mean, like, it's so fun. And I, I mean, like, well, okay, to, to be to be more specific, right? Uh, it is a sandwich complex. And knowing iron, iron, from my understanding, typically doesn't like to be in sandwich complexes because the sandwich complex is more kind of like linear-esque as opposed to octahedral or tetrahedral, which iron prefers um, and more so octahedral. So I think that was really interesting, but I also love iron. Iron is, you can call me basic if you'd like, but iron is my, one of my favorite metals. There's a, there are a lot of good reasons to, to like iron. Uh, oh, I yeah. Mean, yeah. You can call it, you know, basic and a workhorse are just two sides of the same coin, right? Mm-hmm. Iron does a lot of stuff and you can roll your eyes and say, oh, sure, you know, it's iron, how basic. But at the same time, it's like, well, if it can do so many different things, that, that kind of also makes it interesting. It just means that it's chemically flexible, right? Right. But if anyone wants to say, oh, you like iron, that's so basic, I'll be like, um, iron is a Lewis acid, drops the mic, just leaves. Um, anyway... <laughs> Now, I'm actually really excited to hear about your science. Um, and and t- before we dive into that, um, it was really interesting the way that you described the field that you work in. It you described it like playing with playing Legos with orbitals. What? So could you could you elaborate what you meant by that? I'm really interested. That was something that I've come. Uh... That's sort of like a, a way that I think about my chemistry that I've come to more recently as I've been giving more presentations where I try to explain why what I'm doing is different from what has been done before, where there are a lot of people who make interesting ligands um, and the ligands themselves are interesting for lots of reasons. But the way that I approach ligand design wasn't really covered in many of the presentations that I hear about making new ligands, which is what I do is I look at um, some ligand that has been um, well studied in the past. So, you know, for example, we know what the um, frontier orbitals, the highest occupied molecular orbital and the lowest unoccupied molecular orbital, the HOMO and the LUMO, you know, through computation and experimentation, we know what those look like. Um, And then you can start asking a question, well, if we know what those look like, if we add some other fragment that we also know what their frontier orbitals look like, how will those interact with each other to make some new set of orbitals? So basically taking individual blocks that you understand well and then piecing them together such that you create some new molecule that is 
I don't want to call it rationally designed one because that feels very, uh, that feels a little bit sensationalist, but also, you know, it's only quasi rational because you're not, you never quite know what's going to happen when you introduce new fragments, but at least from like a zero order type approximation, you can say, you know, the frontier orbitals, if they're overlapping, should engage in some form of bonding interaction, which means you form a new set of orbitals and like based off of even just like more simple inorganic or even general chemistry type thinking, you can approximate what your new frontier orbitals will look like, which basically means that I take molecules that have been studied a lot and then try and mix and match them in new and interesting ways to create uh, exotic electronic structures that will be interesting for other people to study. Exotic. Okay. Yeah, that, that's the buzzword that I throw in there to make it um, interesting to the reader. <laughs> of course. I, I, I think of exotic and I was like, these chemical compounds come only from the Amazon rainforest. No, they, they, yeah, they only come from the exotic um, region of France. Otherwise, they're just sparkling orbitals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Okay. So, and thank you for describing... Um, or for explaining your field in more detail. Um, so now I'm really intrigued how this ties in with your chemistry and with ferrocene. So, Cole, tell me about your science. What is it that you do? Yeah, so what I said previously was more like a, a thousand mile view of um, how I think about science and chemistry, which is look at individual fragments and their reactive orbitals and then how they're going to fit together. And then I apply that thinking towards um, a specific system, which for me is um, pincer ligands that contain ferrocene. So to break that down, a pincer ligand is a, a ligand that is generally like a um, tridentate equatorial ligand. So you have three donors donor atoms sort of like in a sort of like a pincing faction. So if you imagine kind of like a scorpion just kind of going like grabbing onto something and of that subset of ligands, um, the pyridine diimine family has been studied a lot within um, the chemistry um, community, especially the catalysis community. So pyridine diimine ligands are um, a pyridine and then at the two carbons immediately um, flanking the nitrogen on pyridine, you have two imines. And then each of those, the nitrogen of each of those imines then has some usually aromatic substituent, um, like phenol, disopropyl phenol, you know, different things. But, and then those, all of those three nitrogens will be coordinating to a metal. And then those compounds tend to be very interesting for catalysis because the pyridine is conjugated with the two imines. And that means that the ligand is actually has a lot of redox activity. So it can undergo relatively easily electron transfer between the metal that it's bonded to and then the organic ligand fragment of the molecule, which leads to a lot of non-intuitive chemistry and a lot of interesting multi-electron uh, redox processes that you can do in catalysis, which is generally hard to do for uh, base metals because base metals tend to perform I don't want to say tend to prefer, are less predictable in the redox chemistry because the the barrier to one electron chemistry versus two electron chemistry is a lot lower versus um, the uh, the noble metals. 
So this sort of field is termed to as quote-unquote non-innocent ligand uh, chemistry because you have a ligand that is engaged in active chemistry with the metal, and then that you know combined unit does really interesting chemistry. So the two, the ligand and the metal, are in communication with each other. You know they can exchange electron density between the two of them, which allows them to do chemistry that neither of them can do on their own. Um, which is to say that the communication between two different molecular fragments um, engenders new reactivity that you wouldn't otherwise get from either of them on their own. So the chemistry that I have been doing to sort of tie this all together is taking that um, pyridine diimine ligand family. And I mentioned that the nitrogen of the imines usually um, connects to some aromatic fragment. I substituted those with ferrocene. Uh, because ferrocene, for those not familiar, is an iron atom uh, sandwiched between two cyclopenyl diene rings, and those diene rings are aromatic, so they fit perfectly into like the you know the the structure of the pyridine diamine ligand. But what's really interesting is that, again, like I said before, I like to think about things as like orbital Legos. So the frontier orbitals of ferrocene are metal based. So you have the d orbitals of ferrocene, which have the right symmetry to overlap with the pi orbitals of the imine. And um, once you realize that, you can sort of tug on that thread and realize that you've extended the conjugation of your pyridine diimine uh, ligand onto these two new ferrocenes that you've substituted. So you've taken an already highly conjugated uh, ligand that has really interesting redox chemistry and then added two metals, which are also well-known for the redox chemistry onto that, which uh, greatly diversifies the uh, redox chemistry available to the ligand. So that's what I mean when I say playing orbital Legos to get exotic electronic manifolds is just kind of like taking these individual fragments that are well-studied on their own and then combining them to make a more complex uh, molecule and then seeing if there are interesting emergent properties that arise from that. Okay, first of all, that's really cool. I love that approach of thinking. Um, that's definitely not one that I've taken, but certainly will ponder that more in the future, because, wow, uh, that's very cool. Secondly, so what I'm hearing is, I'm, and I'm like taking your points and then going back, working backwards. But um, what I'm hearing is uh, these these complexes are the whole is greater than the sum of its parts because you had mentioned like when you put them together, they have some kind of functionality or reactivity that they wouldn't have on their own, which I think is incredible. To to respond to that second part, I guess one way. So when I when I phrase it that way, it sounds you know really exciting and new and novel, but really um, this idea is not fundamentally new. So you can kind of think about it as like you know if you're organic inclined, it's almost like you have a, two resonance structures where an electron either resides on the metal or re resides on the ligand, and if you have a resonance hybrid of the two. What that means is that your electron is delocalized between the two fragments. And mm -hmm. what that fundamentally means is that the reactivity of the, the entire compound is going to be 
dependent on the properties of both things that the electro like the orbitals are delocalized over. So that means both that you get um, interesting redox activity because that sort of stabilizes um, the barrier to um, you know accepting a new re uh, electron, right? Like delocalized electrons are more stable than localized ones. So when you have really highly delocalized um, orbitals, it means that low valent or like more negatively charged metals are stabilized through mm -hmm. this type of interaction, which people have exploited for a lot of really interesting chemistry, but even further. Um, so maybe this is something that um, I'll explain again into later, but the way that I think about these systems is in, under the lens of mixed valent chemistry, um, which is a study of looking at multiple metals that are in the same molecule, but they're in different charge states. And if you have two metals that are connected by a conjugated organic linker, what you find is that the like metal electrons can delocalize from one metal over the organic linker into the other metal. And that changes the fundamental chemistry of the system because the orbitals are super delocalized. But these sort of non-innocent ligands are engaging in an almost similar type of chemistry where instead of a metal-metal mixed valency, it's like a metal-organic mixed valency which is kind of how I framed what I'm thinking about with this systems where I have three metals and then an organic part. So it's kind of like you have like a metal organic metal mixed valent system and then trying to look at how that further changes the chemistry. That's very cool. I, so I have a question then. So this, this research, um, because you had mentioned very, like very fleetingly catalysis is your objective in synthesizing these compounds, is it more for uh, exploratory research? Or are you trying to um, aim for a specific application such as catalysis or what's going on there? So we're always looking at applications, of course. Like you always want to have an idea of like, as much as my ethos in going into lab is screw around and find out, um, which is how I sort of explore chemistry is I think this will be interesting and then we'll collect the data and then see will happen. It's more the data analysis stage that I think about the um, application standpoint. And I understand that different people have different opinions about whether or not that is a, um, you know, the, the correct way to do science and reasonable people would disagree. But one facet of this research that I think is really interesting is that what you're basically doing is you're taking known catalysts that do really cool chemistry and expanding the chemical space. So it's a bit in a in-between area where it is very fundamental and exploratory, but it's not like a is water wet kind of question. It's more like we're taking something that we know is applicable and then just trying to expand the possibilities within that chemical space. And the, the specific one that I've been thinking about is um, because I have two ferrocenes on this you know, compound. If those metal electrons are highly delocalized over all three metals, what you might be able to do is instead of, sorry, let me take a step back. Most of the chemistry that has been done with these pyridine diimine um, catalysts is by reducing them to get highly negatively charged metals to do chemistry. So like a quote unquote base catalyzed uh, mechanism. By having ferrocenes, I have something that's oxidizable, so I can take electrons out of the system and make it more positively charged. So I'm hoping that similar interesting chemistry that has been found by um, reducing these compounds could also be found by instituting ways to have highly delocalized oxidized groups on the molecule to get an artificially positively charged metal to do 
um, maybe more stronger Lewis acids um, for catalysis is the, you know, the hope. I have not been able to do the catalysis experiments because all of the synthesis and physical inorganic chemistry has occupied a lot of time. But that's definitely like sort of the, the, the hope for the research. Well, firstly, that's incredible. Secondly, did you say negatively charged metals? Uh, I said more negatively charged. Um, more negatively so, charged. Okay, because I was about to say, I was like, I'm sorry, what, did, did these exist? <laughs> I mean, those, so, mm, mm, you're tugging on a thread that I have a lot of opinions on, which is, what what does an oxidation state even mean? There are complexes where you have metals in formally negative oxidation states. Mm-hmm. I think there is a lot to prove with whether or not there is actually a full negative charge residing on the metal atom. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who have published about this, so I'm, I'm not well um, versed in those compounds. So I don't, I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I'm just saying that uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so, for example, if you have a compound, like an inorganic complex, and it is negatively charged and you do the electron counting and Formally, you come with a negative oxidation state on the metal. Um, there is a lot of evidence that some of that negative charge is pushed back onto the ligands. So in a lot of cases where it's easy to obtain that kind of situation. So for example, if you have a lot of carbonyl ligands or pi backbonding ligands, mm-hmm. um, those um, electron acceptors will uh, take up a lot of that excess charge. So what they will call the spectroscopic oxidation state or that which is observed from direct measurement of the metal differs substantially from the formal oxidation state. So there are compounds that have a formal negative oxidation state. I haven't looked too closely at the um, detailed like X-ray reabsorption data to you know comment about how justified those are. But in any time there's a assigned oxidation state, there's always a little bit of wiggle room depending on what the what the ligands are, I guess is what I was trying to say. That's so cool. Ah, that's so cool. Okay. Ugh. Well, my mind is blown. Um, and I've really quite learned a lot, uh, sweet friend, but it does, however, look like we're nearing the end of our chat. Nevertheless, not before I ask the most anticipated question of this discussion. Are you ready for it? I am so ready. I'm so ready for your readiness. Okay. What is your favorite cake flavor? And why? So my my favorite cake flavor is a bit uh, specific. It's a Mm -hmm. um, coconut lemon curd cake. And the reason why it's my favorite is because this is a cake that I made. This is thinking about a specific memory. This is a cake Mm -hmm. that I made with my family Mm -hmm. um, for uh, one of the holidays uh, over Christmas. um, Because it was my my late grandma's favorite cake. And we, we made it in her memory. And I think in a you know, very poetic sense, it was also possibly one of the best cakes I've ever had. Um, so there is very much like an emotional attachment to that to that cake, but also purely objectively, it was an amazing tasting cake. So I think that that's my favorite case. Uh, so it's a, you know, like a yellow sponge cake with lemon curd in between layers and then like a coconut icing or frosting with coconut flakes on the outside. That's really sweet. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I appreciate. I do. I do appreciate foods with with sentimental values, and especially cakes with sentimental value. 
uh, because while my favorite cake is tiramisu, marble cake is uh, a very close second for sentimental reasons, but um, I've digressed. But anyway, um, uh, sweet friend, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This was so, this was so fun. This is so wonderful. Um, and to the folks at home, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we hope that this was as learnful for you as it was for me. And yes, you heard that correctly. I said learnful. I said it. I meant it. Uh, <laughs> anyway, if you would like to follow the many inorganic adventures of Cole Carter, you can follow him on Twitter at Cole underscore Carter, um, which will be linked in the description. Um, I just want to interject here. Um, so it'll be in the description, which is great. But coal is like the, the fossil fuel. C-O-A-L. C-O-A-L. Yes. C-O-A-L. For folks that are not looking at the description, C-O-A-L underscore Carter, just so that you know how to, how to follow him. Um, and of course, if you'd like to hop aboard the hype train, choo-choo, you can follow me on Twitter at Chemistry Cake. Uh, folks, this is your friendly reminder um, that the giveaway is still live and active. So make sure to stay tuned for the following episodes to enter for a chance to win one of two X-ray crystallography pins, courtesy of my friends at D Orbital Games. Their social media handles will be dropped in the description of this episode as well. You should definitely go give them a follow. Uh, their badges and other merch are truly a grand time. Um, yeah. Okay, folks, it looks like that's all we've got for you today. Uh, this is your friendly reminder to stay hydrated, to keep the hype alive, and to edify our village. We stand new growth, so strive to thrive. Thanks for tuning in, Cake Nation. This is Chemistry Cake, signing off. Chemistry Cake Online.